This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Joshua Shank, the Chief Innovation Officer at LA Metro, about the future of public transit and how innovation can help improve mobility in one of our largest cities. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. I think you have the best title of, of anyone who's been on the show. You're Chief Innovation Officer in the Department of Extraordinary Innovation at LA Metro. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about LA Metro, an overview of the types of services you're providing in Los Angeles? Sure. Yeah, LA Metro is a bit of an unusual transportation agency because we do build, plan, and operate uh, public transit services for LA County, which is the largest county in the nation and larger than 42 states. So that's a big responsibility right there, but we're also kind of given responsibility for things beyond public transit. So we also help plan the highway system. We build and operate the express lanes, uh, hot lanes that are operating in Los Angeles County. We do bike share, we do transit-oriented communities. We are getting into homelessness. There's a problem in Los Angeles County that's related to mobility, we're probably on it. Wow, that that that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big task. Um, <laughs> so, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Office of Extraordinary Innovation? I'm not sure how many big cities have that kind of um, a department or focus. How does it fit in uh, to what LA Metro is trying to accomplish? Well, I think the general trend in public service is that people recognize the need to be more innovative. And they have often created positions where there's a new innovation person, right? But just creating a person who's responsible for innovation doesn't create the kind of change that we were looking to create here in LA County. And that's why our CEO, Phil Washington, created the Office of Extraordinary Innovation, which has a significant amount of resources behind it uh, compared to your typical innovation office. So we were created with the purpose of being a liaison to the private sector for innovative ideas with respect to technology and specifically with respect to project delivery, um, and also to be the strategic planning arm for LA Metro, create the agency strategic plan and the vision for what we want to accomplish for the next 10 years. Uh, We were also given staff, and I report directly to the CEO. So that's a much bigger initiative than you might typically see when it comes to innovation. And it's because the scale of the problem here is quite large, as you may well know, the Los Angeles mobility. um, Those are two words that are often not spoken in the same sentence because (laughs) of the traffic challenges that we have here and because our public transit system still needs to be built out. So it does take something extraordinary and innovative to try to tackle the scale of the problem we have here. Absolutely. So, um, what is the experience like for most of LA Metro's 
uh, customers. Um, you mentioned that you also have control over the, some of the, the freeway uh, piece of it, but when it comes to the public transit piece, um, you're doing bus and light rail. What is the typical experience of a, an LA Metro rider? Well, most of our riders are on our bus network, which is a very extensive network throughout the county. Uh, we have a rapid network and a local network. Um, our goal is to get those bus speeds up. Um, right now, unfortunately, as traffic gets worse for people driving cars, it also gets worse for those people on the buses. And so the experience of the average customer in Los Angeles County on a bus has been declining. And in fact, we've been losing riders in part as a result of that. Um, so what we're trying to do is figure out how to get those buses to go faster by creating more exclusive lanes for buses, uh, by uh, pr providing better trip time and arrival information for our customers to give them a better user experience, and providing more frequent service where it's warranted. So the, the, uh, the current customer experience of using public transit in Los Angeles can be a challenge because of the vast distances and because of the traffic. Um, but we're trying to change that. And we're also building out our rail system quite significantly. Right now, we have uh, a, what I would call almost a skeletal system compared to the size of the county. We have a, a few light rail lines and one uh, heavy rail subway line. We are building that out over the next 40 years, $120 billion worth of infrastructure. Most of that is going towards new rail lines that are going to cover the county to a much greater extent we, than we do now, thus enabling people a way to bypass traffic. Right. What, what is your goal in terms of um, increasing mobility? Are you looking to pull people out of their cars and get them into public transit? Or how, how do you view the, the goals of, of your department that way? Well, certainly the core of our business is, pu is public transit, and we want to increase the number of people riding it because that will improve mobility overall. But we, I, I guess I look at it a little bit differently than that, and I would say as a mobility manager, a mobility provider for the region, our goal is to provide better options for people to get where they need to go. Um, and that means providing a lot more options that are preferable to driving alone. Right now we have way too many people driving alone in LA County. And every time someone's driving alone, they're taking a valuable street space that could be used for things that are more efficient than a car that is rather large with one person in it. So that includes things like biking and walking, creating communities in which you can do those things. That's gonna be a great way to substitute for trips that otherwise could be taken by car. Um, but also means um, trying to figure out how to pull people in vehicles, whether they're personal vehicles or larger vehicles or buses, uh, getting people to ride together is a, a great way to, to deal with that issue. And then for people who really want to drive by themselves, and that's their top priority, making it such that they have to pay for that privilege. Right now, most of the time you want to drive by yourself, you're not going to pay anything out of pocket. Um, and we need to look at how we can price that more accurately given the amount of resources it takes to provide people with those solo rides. So as, as customers and consumers get used to uh, more on-demand type service from things like TNCs, um, 
is it reasonable for them to expect their public transit options to evolve? And, and how do you compete to, to make things more convenient, as you point out, to make it more attractive to try something other than driving by yourself? Yeah, you have to compete in the sense that you have to keep up with the standard that people expect, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're not likely to be able to compete with private companies when it comes to lower labor costs, for example. They're likely to always have lower labor costs than we are. Uh, they're also likely to have lower total costs because they don't need to serve specific public policy objectives like making sure that people who are disabled uh, can use the service or making sure that people who are low income can use the service. That's why public transit and public transportation exist, is that there are many costs to providing it for everyone that the government has to absorb. And that's why it tends to be a money losing proposition. And that's okay, but I think we, we set ourselves up for failure for say we're gonna compete for riders with a service that's going to be inherently less expensive. Instead, what I think about is, how do we adopt the best of what the private sector has developed for use in public transit. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with a couple of projects here. One is our microtransit project, where we're trying to use on-demand technology to dispatch pooled rides in our vehicles. And the other is a partnership we're doing with a company called VIA, uh, which is a transportation network company, to provide first last mile services to three of our stations. So we're trying to experiment with using the best of the private sector technology to provide good public services. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about this partnership with VIA. It's scheduled to start this summer. W what kind of uh, service are they going to provide, and, and how do you see that as a, a model, perhaps, for, for things you might do on a bigger scale later? Well, the service they're going to provide will be first, last mile service within three miles of three stations in L.A. County, so three of our public transit stations. Um, we think of it as an experiment to see what happens when we open up a TNC service to everybody. Because currently, anyone who can afford it um, and can avoid using a wheelchair and has a smartphone and has a bank account can take a TNC to and from a station. But there's a lot of people who don't fit in that category. There's a lot of people who are not able to afford it, who are disabled, who don't have smartphones. It's our responsibility to serve those people. So this experiment is, what if we took a TNC and made it accessible to all those populations and made it useful and intended to drive people to and from our stations? Will that increase the number of people who are using uh, public transit in, uh, in Los Angeles at those stations? And that's an experiment we're, we're excited to undertake. Um, and see what happens, particularly because this is a private company via that wants to provide the service because they're looking to collaborate with the public sector. And so that means if it works, this could be a first last mile solution that could work at lots of places in Los Angeles County and provide a better service for our customers and hopefully at the same or lower cost. Right. How, how do you think about the first mile, last mile issue? It, it seems like it's kind of hard to know how much is that a barrier to people riding transit services? I know here in the Bay Area, if you try to take BART from the East Bay into San Francisco and you want to 
get to a BART station to take the train, you, you know, if you don't get there super early in the morning, there's no place to park. And there's a lot of challenges around that. Or maybe when you get to San Francisco, the BART train doesn't get you anywhere near your office. Um, how do you think about that in LA County? And uh, how much impact do you think it would have to provide better first mile, last mile service? Well, I have a few things to say about that. First, a lot of times what people think is a parking supply problem at transit stations is actually a parking pricing problem. So we we had a similar problem to what you just described uh, with BART, where a number of our stations were filled up by 6.30 a.m. There's nowhere to park. And that's clearly discouraging people from using public transit and making it more difficult to access the station. But we didn't solve that problem by adding more parking or even by providing some new type of first last mile service. We solved that problem by charging for parking and charging at a rate that ensured that there would always be a space available for whoever wanted it. So that's a key lesson there, which is it's not always about supplying the right service. Sometimes it's about charging the right price for the service. But the other thing I'd say is that we have great first last mile services in LA to all of, almost all of our stations. They're called buses. The problem is that those buses are stuck in the same traffic that the other cars are stuck in, and they often are unreliable as a result, and they may not run frequently enough because they're not popular enough because they're stuck in traffic. So part of why we need to focus so much of our energy on getting exclusive lanes for buses is to make them into a more viable first-last-mile solution because any rational human being would say, well, if I'm going to sit in traffic on a bus, I may as well drive there. And if I'm going to drive there and I can't park, I may as well drive all the way to where I'm going rather than take transit. And we're we're setting up choices that make it such that people are almost always going to choose to drive. And it should be no surprise that most of them do. Uh, So we have to make those choices a different set of choices by incorporating both pricing and a supply of better transportation into our future definitely seems like a chicken and egg problem where, you know, you sort of can't get the results you want without, you know, taking these other steps ahead of time and sort of which one do you do first. Um, It seems like some of the difficulties with pilot projects are that, you know, you offer a TNC service or something in microtransit, which we'll get to in a second, and, and the numbers aren't there. You know, that not enough people use it or what have you, but it, you know, it may be because of this other problem you're identifying, which is, well, we haven't provided the bus lane or we haven't created these other things that would enable the service to succeed. I think there is certainly a chicken egg issue, uh, which is why you need to do both. You need to improve the supply side and manage the demand side. Right now, There are lots of examples of cities in this country that have done a good job on the supply side, right? You can think of good public transit systems that are very extensive in New York, Chicago, Portland, uh, D.C., even to some extent the Bay Area, very extensive public transit networks, but they have not done a good job managing the demand side. And as a result, those transit networks um, are not well-funded and suffer from a lot of funding challenges because there's no revenue source for them. And the street networks and highway networks are completely clogged. If you do both, if you provide a good supply of good transit services, 
and you charge people effectively to use the streets at the, based on time of day, and you use that money to invest in transit, you're going to have a working system. We see it in the cities that do it. We see it in Stockholm. We see it in London. We see it in, in Singapore, places where they've used congestion pricing and a solid investment in public transit. It does result in a much better outcome. Right. What do you think about um, the use of on-demand uh, services or, or routing for public transit? Um, you know, some public transit folks say that the existing fixed route services are the only way to move volumes of people around in order to, you know, relieve congestion and that on-demand type services just serve too few people per hour. Um, do you think that's necessarily true, or is it kind of part of this this chicken and egg problem? Well, I guess I would say on-demand services serve too few people per hour compared to what? Uh, right now, there are on-demand services serving all kinds of people all over the place. They're called Uber, Lyft, and uh, Via, and all these other companies. And many of those rides are pooled rides. So clearly there is demand for that type of service. Uh, whether it is financially viable, I think is a different question. Uh, but you have to remember that when public transit is concerned, our services are not financially viable, right? We're getting a 19% fare box recovery ratio typically for our buses. Uh, so you could say that, yeah, we need to run more frequent service in the high capacity areas and we'll get higher ridership and we'll get better fare box recovery. I absolutely agree with that. But that doesn't mean that every single area of the city can be effectively covered with a high capacity fixed route transit bus. There are lots of parts of this region that can't. And that where we are running buses right now that are highly infrequent, which sometimes buses that are once every half an hour or once every 45 minutes, and people, not that many people are riding them. So is the answer there to run more large buses? I don't think so. I think the answer there is perhaps on-demand transit would be a much better service, attract more people, and wind up being more financially viable than those large buses. Right. So it depends on the, the location and, and the number of people uh, on each of the buses. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit, um, since we're going there, on, on microtransit. Um, what is your department doing with respect to uh, using, considering using microtransit for uh, the public sector? How do you think that fits in with uh, your current system? Well, we're going to be launching a bold microtransit experiment. Well, in fact, next week, we're going to be talking to our board about awarding some contracts for this project. And what we're going to be doing over the next six months is a feasibility study to figure out where should this go and what would it look like and working with the private sector directly to develop that service. And once we've completed that study and we're ready to launch the service, we hope to be on the road uh, early next year. Uh, the service will be an experiment. It'll be a pilot program. We'll see whether people use it or not. We'll adjust accordingly if they don't. Uh, we'll, we'll seek to, comp to iterate and improve on whatever service we provide. But the idea is to test whether on-demand transit service provided with our vehicles and our drivers can work. Uh, and it's an exciting experiment. It'll be the largest, uh, largest uh, microtransit pilot in the world that I know of. 
And this will be uh, designed to be used in places, as you just pointed out, where uh, there isn't enough ridership to have frequent enough fixed route service? Well, you can imagine several scenarios under which this might be a benefit, right? Yeah, one of them is what you just said. There's, there's not enough demand to have large fixed route buses, but there are still people who need transit and this could be a, a much better alternative for them. Another could be, perhaps there are places where there are fixed route buses that work, but they only work on one specific corridor and you need, people are, are going uh, beyond that corridor, right? They might use that corridor some part of the time, but then they have to get to and from that corridor and by the time they're done transferring buses twice, it takes them an hour and a half to do their trip. Well, maybe microtransit could be a way for them to have a much faster trip by providing a point-to-point -point service that stops in some different places and is much more efficient than, uh, than what they currently have. And then finally, another use case could be where people are having trouble accessing a rail station, as we discussed earlier where perhaps they don't own a car and can't drive and park, or perhaps they can't afford to own a car and drive and park. And the bus service that takes them to and from those stations is currently uh, not an attractive option because either it's sitting in traffic or because it's a, a circuitous route. So microtransit might be a faster way for them to get to and from that rail station. Right. Um, again, some in the public transit community have objected that using micro, using sort of public funds on microtransit projects ends up you know, not serving enough customers. Obviously, you're hoping to change that by having successful uh, routes. Um, well, I, got, I mean, again, compared to what? Uh, using, using public funds on, on buses, in many cases, is not attracting sufficient customers. But we keep doing it. And we keep doing it because we have an obligation to provide that service to the public. The question is not whether microtransit will be financially viable. The question is whether microtransit will be more financially viable than the service we currently provide, and whether it will be a better service for our customers than what we currently provide. That's the question we should be asking, is will it be able to accomplish those things? So um, I read the Eno Center report uh, on microtransit that describes some pilot projects that had been tried in the past in various locations. Um, what do you think the lessons are uh, from some of the ways that microtransit uh, pilot projects have been used in the past and, and how might you um, offer something different to perhaps have a more successful result? Well, a few lessons I think are key takeaways. One, people often are trying to use technology to demonstrate that they are innovative and that they're trying new things. And I, I applaud that. I think that's important. But that's not the mandate we have here. Uh, my boss did not create this office so we could show how innovative we are. He created this office because he wanted to create new services that work and make things better for people in Los Angeles County through better mobility. So we're not doing this as a technology demonstration project. We're not doing this to show that we have an innovation team and aren't we great. We're doing this because we think we have a way of providing a better service to our customers. And that's why we're taking time to do the feasibility study, to work with the private sector directly, to really look at this carefully 
before we go out and launch the service. Um, so that's one, one key issue. Another issue is I think people sometimes have looked to microtransit as a means of solving a problem that they have with respect to providing transit. For example, in Kansas City, they had a problem of trying to provide a crosstown route. And they said, oh, maybe we should try microtransit for it. I don't think that's necessarily a good way to approach using this technology because this technology is not something that will just solve any problem you have. It might solve certain problems in certain use cases, and it's critical to figure out which use cases it might work in before you go and launch the service, rather than just applying it to whatever use case might be the problem that you have at the moment. And then finally, I think that in many cases, places have launched microtransit service using the existing resources and contracts that they had. They went out and said, oh, we already have these vehicles, let's repurpose them for microtransit. Or we already have these contracted services, let's try to use microtransit. And I think that's a, a road that is more dangerous to go down as well because, again, it doesn't have the careful thought about what is the service for, where is it going to be useful, how is it going to be used by people. So I think by taking the time and really putting in the due diligence, we have a much greater chance of success. Think about autonomous uh, vehicles, you know, kind of fitting in uh, to these types of bus routes uh, in the future. So if they're, you know, I, you know, we're probably a little ways away from this, but, you know, the idea of using an autonomous shuttle bus, um, do you view sort of the current projects in microtransit as paving the way for then being able to offer a greater number of buses and greater number of routes once the cost comes down with an autonomous vehicle? Well, I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to autonomous vehicles. Not that I don't believe that the technology uh, can be developed, and I do, um, but I have a hard time imagining a future where we really eliminate drivers from vehicles such that it becomes the scenario described where we're, we're reducing costs. Because let's, let's say I've got a 60-foot bus rolling through town at 35, 40 miles per hour. Do our customers going to feel comfortable when I take that driver off the bus completely and they're just left to their own devices on this bus rolling through town? I, I guess it's possible that that scenario exists in the future. It's just very hard for me to imagine it. And if I, as a customer service-oriented business, had the opportunity to release the driver from the duties of driving, I would still want somebody on the bus to be able to take over in an emergency or to be able to serve customer needs. And so I just don't know that I'm going to be able to reduce costs in the way you describe mm -hmm. uh, through autonomy. I do think that there are autonomous features that we could be implementing uh, and we are going to be implementing on our vehicles that can improve safety. And we're going to be continuously looking for those because the more redundancy we can provide that can improve safety and make sure that while the driver is still paying attention, uh, they have backup systems that can help if they make a mistake. I think that's really important. So you're looking at assisted driving uh, technologies uh, to improve uh, the driving of your existing drivers on existing vehicles. Absolutely. I think about it the way that, that the aviation industry thinks about it, right? Uh, airplanes today, when you get on them, uh, 
they're almost entirely autonomous. Uh, well, I, I, I used to work in the aviation industry and people used to joke that when the plane lands and it's kind of a hard thud and, and, and everyone's like, oh, that was a rough landing. That's the pilot practicing landing a plane. <laughs> uh, and and really, if you let the computer do it, it's going to be a smooth landing. Uh, and that, so that's, that doesn't mean we've gotten rid of pilots. We still have them there because people are not going to accept the idea that they are willing to take their chances that the computer is 100% accurate and right. I mean, computers break down all the time. I had trouble getting onto Skype for this call, right? Uh, you know, computers are unreliable because they are programmed by human beings, and human beings are unreliable and can't be perfect when they program things. So I'm just skeptical that we're going to get to the point that we can completely release the driver from all responsibilities and get to that level of, of you know, level six autonomy um, or level five autonomy that's really uh, viable to the point where we're reducing costs. I just don't see it happening. So you're a you're a human in the loop guy for uh, automated buses. Uh, so how about the impact of autonomous cars? Um, we've seen a lot of studies lately about the impact of TNCs like Uber and Lyft on cities in terms of, um, you know, I guess there's some debate as to whether they're increasing traffic, whether the additional trips are affecting commute traffic or just evening and weekend rides, whether TNCs are reducing transit ridership. There's a lot of debate about that. And the, I think the general view is that if we get to uh, a full autonomy, that the, the number of TNC type rides will increase as autonomous ride services become available at a cheaper cost. So setting aside the buses for a moment, if we, um, if we do see it at the car level and there are you know, additional rides available at a cheaper cost. How do you think about that impact on LA County? Um, I don't know if you have a view as to what the impact of TNCs has been so far on LA Metro ridership or, or on LA traffic, but what, what do you think will happen in, in the future uh, when we get to full no. autonomy? I have a view on everything. You don't have to worry about that. You can ask. <laughs> I was counting on that. I may not necessarily be informed, but it's always there. No, I, 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 think, I think that the data has indicated uh, pretty clearly that TNCs are contributing to congestion and environmental degra degradation in Los Angeles and around the world. Uh, I don't think that's really up for debate. And I think that uh, while I'm skeptical we're gonna, that they're going to get to full autonomy as well, I think that you know the accident with, that Uber had recently is an example of how challenging it's going to be to get to full autonomy for, for these vehicles. But even if they did get to full autonomy, that's just going to exacerbate a problem we already have. And the problem we have can be addressed today and should be addressed today. The problem we have is, first of all, I already talked about how the roadway space is given away on a first-come, first-served basis and not priced accordingly. And so you're going to have over uh, you know, oversubscription of that service because it's given away for free. And TNCs are taking advantage of that um, in providing this service. And second, the problem is that TNCs in most cases, and certainly in California, continue to be regulated in a way that is very different from how we regulate other services that are similar. Taxi cabs are subject to way more regulatory uh, 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 problems and challenges um, than, than the TNCs. 
And as a result, they can't compete. And meanwhile, you've got a tremendous amount of venture capital behind these TNCs. They're underpricing their service. We're not charging them for road space. And they're underregulated. Well, so it's not surprising that they would cause congestion. We have to do something about that. We have to uh, have a better partnership between public and private sector on these types of services because they have public impacts that are negative and need to be controlled. So what is what would your solution be? Uh, vehicle miles traveled, tax, uh, congestion tax, uh, pricing the curb within cities. How, what what are the things that you would like to see to even out the the pricing disparity as you see it? Well, we've got to look into all those things. Uh, I mean, I don't know that what the solution is yet. For specifically for Los Angeles, we certainly don't know what the solution is. Um, in some cities, we've seen cordon pricing as an effective strategy, like in London. I don't know that cordon pricing would really work in Los Angeles because we've only got 3% of employment downtown. So cordon pricing for downtown might be nice, but that's likely just to chase jobs out of downtown to other parts of the area. So I, I don't know uh, what the specific answer is yet. What I know is that we have to look into it. We have to think about it as a possible solution, and that's exactly what we plan to do based on what's in our strategic plan. So you mentioned uh, partnerships between kind of private companies and 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 the public uh, sector. What, what are the best ways for TNCs or in the future these new autonomous ride services uh, to work with you at LA Metro and, you know, presumably with other uh, big city agencies. What what are you looking to see when people come to you with partnership ideas or looking um, to do pilot projects? What, what are you looking for? I'm looking for a partner that sees itself as a true collaborator. Um, I think that a lot of times these private companies might say that they want to work with the public sector because they think that it looks bad if they don't want to look, work with the public sector. And they don't want to be seen as just look, you know, just purely in search of a profit motive. Um, and I, I think that's a, a mistake. You have to be genuine about your need for collaboration. We want to collaborate with the private sector because there are things that they do better than we do. They're more efficient than we are. They tend to be more innovative than we are. They're more adaptable than we are. Um, we want to bring them on because of the profit motive. At the same time, they need to want to bring us on because they care about public policy issues. If they're purely searching for uh, profit and they're not trying to think about how they can also serve greater public needs, it's going to be challenging to work with them because mostly what we're going to demand, what we're going to need from them in our collaboration is transparency, data sharing, uh, serving populations that are difficult to serve and more expensive to serve and are more needy. Those are not things that the private sector typically does. So we have to both come to the table with the idea of collaborating and understanding each other's position in order for it to be successful. Are there um, partnerships that you're interested in around uh, serving different communities um, like catering to the elderly or the disabled or specific underserved neighborhoods? Are there any uh, projects or ideas that, 
that you're looking to see uh, for different communities? Well, I don't think about it that way. I don't think about targeting specific communities. Um, I think about targeting our services and anything we do towards the places with the greatest mobility need. There are a lot of places in LA County that suffer from a mobility challenge. Perhaps it's because in many cases people can't afford vehicles. In other cases, it's because even if you have a vehicle, you can't go anywhere because you're stuck in traffic. But our goal is to target our investments and target our partnerships towards places that really need no mobility help. Um, and that can be a challenge because a lot of times investments and other decisions are politically driven and they might not be following exactly where the need is, but instead be following some other political calculus. So it's our job to push um, our use of resources towards the places that need it most. You mentioned data sharing. Um, I know it's been a point of contention between uh, some of the TNCs and and cities um, as to uh, wanting to work together, wanting to uh, see if there can be first mile, last mile solutions and and ways that TNCs might work with uh, public transit agencies and things like that. But data sharing, who sees the data, how it's collected, where it's stored, um, how much data is shared, all of those have been contentious issues, I know, at least in San Francisco. Um, how, do, how do you approach the concept of data sharing? What do you need to see in order to do partnerships that make sense? Yeah, data sharing has definitely been an issue. Um, we approach those partnerships with the idea that if we're going to be partners, we're going to share data. And the private sector has some nervousness about that because when you share data with us, you're sharing with everybody effectively because we're subject to public records request and people could come in and say, oh, I want to see all that data and it could likely be released. So that's the risk the private sector has to take. Um, but I think that what I hope, I guess I should say, is that the private sector sees the value in that transparency and sees the value in sharing that data. Because ultimately, for these types of services to succeed in the long run, they will need to share that data. We will need to be more collaborative. I mean, look what's happening uh, in many parts of the world where Uber is getting shut out of places, where you're seeing a backlash uh, against their services, um, where uh, they are still losing billions of dollars every year. Those things are happening because they're not collaborating enough with the public sector. They don't have a sustainable business model without bringing the public policy benefits to bear. Transportation is inherently a public good and inherently a service that has to be that has to work with government in almost every circumstance. What about uh, partnerships with some of the new uh, dockless? bikes and scooter uh, sharing companies. Have you, I know you run some of that yourself. Have you uh, engaged with any of these newer companies that are providing some, some dockless electric bikes and scooters yet? Yeah, we've engaged with some of them. Uh, it's an interesting business model and an interesting idea. What I think you'll see us doing is looking at our existing bike 
share network and seeing what innovations we can incorporate into that. Dockless being one of them, um, better pricing and uh, that's more effective in bringing in riders being another, uh, better location decisions. I think you'll see all of those being incorporated into our bike share network. Now, th this goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is it is our job as public policy people to look out for the innovations of the private sector and figure out how to incorporate them into our business model. Sometimes that might mean a direct partnership with a private sector company. Sometimes it might mean just taking the best of what they do and incorporating it into what we do. It depends on the specific circumstances of, uh, and the service that we're providing. Great. All right, final question. Uh, looking out, you know, 10 years, what, what is your vision for how mobility will be better in LA County? What, what does a win look like for you in terms of innovation? Well, in 10 years, I would hope that we have an extensive network of both bus rapid transit and rail lines that covers uh, most of the county and allows people to get where they need to go by public transit as fast, if not faster, than it would take them in a vehicle. And similarly, I hope that if they choose to drive, there will be an appropriate price that is uh, levied on people who choose to drive, such that anyone who is choosing to drive will also be able to get where they want to go faster than they do today and more reliably than they do today. So our vision for 10 years from now is a Los Angeles with choices for people, the real legitimate choices for people about how they want to get around and all good choices. Right now, there's a very big divide between people who have the choice of driving and people who don't because we've created a highly inequitable system. And I want to see a system that is much more equitable where people who want to drive can and can get where they want to go, but have paid the real cost of it. And people who don't want to drive still have an excellent alternative available that allows them to get where they need to go for an affordable price. I think that'd be really exciting if we can get there in the next 10 years. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Josh for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For our show notes, please visit our Smarter Cars publication at medium.com. We'll see you next time.